Well, good morning again. It's good to be back in the pulpit and with you. I'm going to have to go get my reading glasses. I can't see a thing. <laughs> and the people rejoiced. <laughs> but I'm back. We're going to resume our time in the book of Colossians today, and um, uh, perhaps you enjoyed the reprieve from uh, the book of Colossians while uh, Joel and Del delved into other portions of Scripture, and uh, as I said, that was a blessing, I'm sure, for all of us. Um, But today we're going to get back into the book of Colossians and be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, as we continue to work through these exhortations by Paul to us the redeemed of Christ. These are practical points that he is making here, these imperatives, having laid the doctrinal foundation, the indicative from which flows these delightful duties that we perform out of our our love for Jesus Christ, which we will see today is again uh, a motivating factor for us. Before we get into this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time to be together. We ask that you would bless our time in your word and Help us to comprehend it and understand it and importantly apply it to our lives. To comprehend and understand the preaching of the word is what we're called to do and you have have assigned the the means and manner of of understanding through preaching. And so we ask that you would help us today, Lord, through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Give us clarity of thought. Help us to set aside the cares of the world. Help us to focus on Um, the word that you have so graciously preserved and kept for us all these ages. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for grace, forgiveness, mercy, your long-sufferingness, your faithfulness towards us. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Looking at Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another this principle of forbearance and forgiving each other, so forgiveness is important. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, we have in the past been looking at the book of Colossians, understanding that Paul is writing to a church that is considered by by most standards, to be a mature church. They have a faithful pastor named Epaphras who travels a long distance to go see Paul, who's imprisoned in Rome. Epaphras communicates to Paul that there's a false teacher, of course, in the church that has arisen and is leading people astray into a variety of errors, the primary error being a lack of focus or centrality of the finished work of Jesus Christ as he points them to experiences and rules and regulations and legalism and excited utterances and speculations and conjectures, none of which is profitable for anything, as we know by the final verse of chapter 2, verse 23. Paul goes to great lengths to undermine and to correct 
the error that had crept into the church by taking people back to Jesus Christ, making Christ central again. And this is important for us to be mindful of because Christ is the central theme of all of Scripture. Everything points to Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ. The New Testament shows Christ revealed and fulfilled. And so Paul here wants to make certain that people are remembering that Christ is to be central in everything. And he explains to them the means by which they have been saved, the fact that Christ is the perfect manifestation of the triune God in human form, that we were alienated, hostile in mind, that God in the context of that alienation still saved us, brought us to himself through the finished work of Christ. And as a consequence of that, he then has a people who then are unique in the way that they act and they think. And so Paul begins this segment of chapter 3 with the reference to the doctrine of election to emphasize, again, pointing out the unique position that we as the redeemed of Christ hold as the elect of God, that we indeed as the elect of God have been equipped to live out the life that would be pleasing to Him. We don't do these things to be saved. We do these things because we are saved. And that's an important point. And so in verse 12, Paul says, so, so as those who have been chosen of God. And we're going to see this theme again on Paul, this doctrine of election theme again rising and coming up again in verse 15. And so let's look at verse 15. We looked at the issue of these virtues that Paul wants us to, to demonstrate um, the idea of having a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The product of those types of, of virtues plays themselves out in the idea of forbearance and forgiveness, Christ being the perfect model of forbearance and forgiveness. So we emulate Him, and the exercise of these virtues results then in these types of attitudes and actions. We then have love, which is the cloak that embodies all of these virtues. It's the perfect binding uh, uh, adhesive, if you will, that holds all of these things together. All of these things are to be done in love. And if they're not done in love, then they become abrasive and caustic, as we know from 1 Corinthians 13, which we looked at as well. Well, Paul continues with this theme in verse 15, the idea of there being unity and there being peace within the congregation. Now, keep in mind, too, that Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to a specific church, and he's encouraging them and exhorting them to be at peace, to be in, in the bond of unity, and to love each other in that context. And we'll see today that Paul drives home an important point of the idea of, of the peace of Christ controlling us in the context of how we interact with each other. Again, Paul is concerned that as the redeemed of Christ, as the elect of God, that we demonstrate that in the way we act. Christians act a certain way. A church should not look like the world in the context of how it interacts with each other. And it's unfortunate that the church has such a bad reputation in the world for being a place of contention and hypocrisy and a lot of other things. And indeed, many people will say, well, I won't go to church simply because I don't want to be associated with people who act like that. And it's sad indeed that we have that reputation. Um, and certainly Paul would be concerned about that as, as he should be. And so in verse 15, Paul says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So we're going to have two imperatives in verse 15, 
as I've noted, Paul has moved from the indicative, chapter 1, chapter 2, have some imperative-type exhortations in them, but they're primarily doctrinal in nature. Chapter 3 begins more of the imperative, the flowing out of the product of the salvation that's spoken of in the preceding two chapters, and we see that with the put-on, put-off motif that Paul uses so frequently. And here in verse 15, we kind of see that same theme again occurring. Let the peace of Christ. So there's your first imperative, and the second one is, is at the end of verse 15, and be thankful. And so what we're seeing here is that Paul's position and his argument is going to be that because of what God has done in our relationship with Him, that all relationships then are then touched by God through us. The vertical reality of our peace with God through Christ plays out in real time in our horizontal relationships with others in the church, right with God, right with each other. At peace with God, that peace flowing out from us to others as well within the church. This, this gratitude towards God makes peace towards other, others possible. And so what Paul is wanting the Colossian believers to understand is that you have this amazing salvation. I have set out before you in chapter 2 in particular the wonders of your redemption, how it is that God has rescued you from the domain of darkness, and how in chapter 2 He has set you apart. He has, he, has, he has baptized you into Christ. He has nailed to the cross all the offenses that were ascribed to you, that Jesus Christ has borne all of those things. This salvation is wonderful. It's overwhelming. The magnitude of it is almost incomprehensible. And as a consequence of that, people who understand and comprehend the wonders and magnitude of their salvation then play the reality of that out in how they act and relate to each other. And so within the church, as we walk around, we're looking at each other and we're thinking to ourselves, well, they too, like me, have been saved, and I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and they're a sinner saved by grace. Praise God for that. It's a wonder that God saved anybody at all, but He has saved us, and we're here together today, united in Christ. How good is that, as we say here at Community Bible Church? And as a consequence of that, that changes the way we relate to each other which plays into what we've already talked about with the idea of forbearance and forgiveness and this bond of love. Now, now let's keep in mind, too, that when we talk about peace, oftentimes within the Christian community, and I'm seeing that more and more today, that peace means compromise. That peace means that we accept anything and everything that anyone offers to us in the context. We just, someone says to me or to you in the church, well, I'm such and such, I'm this or I'm that. Well, let's just use the modern issues of the day. I'm transgender, I'm whatever. And for whatever reason, we can't say something back to them about the issue because we have to be at peace with them. Well, peace does not mean compromise. Indeed, in the Beatitudes, Christ would say, blessed are the peacemakers, because that peace that they're speaking of is the gospel. It's communicating the gospel to people. And we know what happens when we communicate the gospel. It makes people angry often, doesn't it? Um, people get upset about it. People are persecuted. In fact, indeed, Christ would speak to the issue of persecution even in the Beatitudes. And so we're, we're, we're peacemakers. We're not peacekeepers in the context of the idea of just trying to find ways to allow people to get along. No, we communicate the truth of the gospel, which ultimately brings true peace. We hear a lot about peace today, don't we? 
people are always talking about peace in the Middle East, peace in the Pacific Rim, peace in the cities, peace in the urban environment, peace within whatever context it is. It's everywhere today. But it's not a peace that's motivated by Christ or based in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what Paul ultimately is communicating to us today that only true peace is known in Christ. And when we're in Christ, we can know that peace because we're no longer under judgment, we're no longer under condemnation. And as a consequence of that, we can know and experience what true peace is. Man's peace is often temporary. It's fleeting. It's not of a permanent nature. But the peace of Christ, of which Paul is speaking here, is indeed permanent. And so Paul here is focused on these personal connections um, that are so important. Um, And he's doing this, importantly, even while exposing the false teaching of uh, of the false teacher that's within their midst. It's obvious, apparently, that um, this false teacher has created some form of dissension within the congregation, um, and it's certainly evident by Paul's emphasis on these issues of virtue, of the virtues that he speaks of, and of forbearance, and forgiveness, and of love, and unity, and now peace. And so, he's, he's transitioned to providing specific application of the truths that we know from chapter 1 and chapter 2, Um, And now he's looking at the issue of these interpersonal relationships that are within the church. And so Paul adds uh, another command here. Um, The command is simply this, let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ rule. And so Paul here is now providing a guideline for living together as God's people within the local fellowship of Christ's church. What's interesting is that this then lays the groundwork for more specific instruction that follows in the balance of chapter 3 and into the early part of chapter 4. Verses 18 through the balance of chapter 3, verse 1 of chapter 4, flow out into these other type of personal relationships. And we'll see how that plays out when we get there in that 15-series sermon that I have on um, wives. is really going to be quite compelling for you all, I'm sure. So we have this interpersonal issue here that Paul is very concerned about, and so he gives us another command. Let the peace of Christ rule. So this present imperative demands that the action be taken repeatedly, habitually, and as a pattern of life. So let's look at that. That's important. Let the peace of Christ rule. This word rule is also important. So Paul is basically saying, as a consequence of your salvation— It ought to be, in the believer's life, a pattern wherein peace is prevalent in your relationship with other believers. Now, again, I want to be cautious about something here. Peace does not mean compromise. Peace does not mean acceptance of error. Peace does not mean mean giving in on essential truths of Scripture, It does not mean that at all, but for some reason in the church today, peace is taken to mean pacifism, which means we don't take a stand on critical issues, and we allow things to be pushed on us that are contrary to Scripture. That's not the case. And so when we talk about peace, this does not mean that we're not able to speak to the issue of sin, doesn't mean that we're not able to speak to current issues of the day, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take a stand on critical issues of the day. 
Christians ought to have a clear voice based upon the truth of God's Word about everything. About everything. God's Word is the final authority in faith and practice. It controls and dictates how we think about all things, not just some things. And so we need to be very cautious about this because a lot of people today take this verse, they take it out of context, and they force people to, be, to work within a paradigm that simply says, as a Christian, you can't really say anything because you have to be at peace with everybody. No, that's not the case at all. The communication of the gospel itself, as I've noted, is controversial, but we're called to do it. It makes people upset. Christ came and he said he came with a sword and he's going to divide even families, separating individual members within families simply because of the message that he brings and we need to keep that in mind. So peace does not mean compromise. Peace is not compromise, but it is something that we need to be engaged in. This peace that we are speaking of here is, is one which speaks to the idea that we are at peace with God, and therefore, as a consequence of being at peace with God, we can be at peace with each other as the redeemed of Christ. We revel in that. We enjoy that with each other, and that ought to cause us not to be quick within ourselves, within our own body, to lash out, to be hard, to be harsh. doesn't mean you can't be a person of conviction, it doesn't mean you can't be a person who has the ability to clearly articulate God's Word with passion and clarity, but it does mean that we're not going to wear our emotions on our sleeves and lash out at people in an instant and assert our rights in every single context in order to obtain the upper hand. That's how the world acts. What Paul is saying to the Colossian believers is that contrary to what you're being taught by the false teacher, you should not be engaged in a constant internal turmoil with each other, asserting particular rights and, and opportunities or elevated status. Keep in mind that the false teacher had taught that, that there were kind of two tiers of Christianity. He was one of the upper tiers because he had had this special temple experience, this special vision that you see that Paul references in chapter 2. And so he had created almost a caste system within the church. That's not the case. And Paul doesn't want that. We all together are the redeemed of Christ. We were all the same people that Paul identifies in verse 13 of chapter 2. Those who were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, who were made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. That's who we all are together. And that's who we were all together before God saved us. And understanding that truth is imperative to understanding the issue of peace. Peace speaks to the resolution of the tension and the conflict and the judgment that is attendant with being outside of Christ. You are under God's condemnation. Outside of Christ, you will be judged according to what you have done, and you will be held accountable for it. That is what Paul is speaking to here. But we, as the redeemed of Christ, that has been removed from us. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul wants to make certain that the reality of this, this is why doctrine matters. If, if I don't explain to you 
how it is that it's necessary that God saves you and, and why the doctrine of election is so important, then, then you can truly never comprehend peace. You know that you can never understand the peace of Christ until you understand the doctrine of election. Until you comprehend God's sovereignty, the peace of Christ will be fleeting to you. It will be like trying to stack grease BBs. You can't do it. Have you ever done that? If you have, we need to talk. I... Perhaps on a rainy day, sitting at the table, you have nothing to do. I'll stack grease BBs. But, but see, it's so important. People shy away from the doctrine of election. We've talked about this. Pastors won't preach on it for fear that people don't, no one will come back again. They're, they're afraid they're going to offend people. I, I don't care. It's here, and we're going to preach it. Because understanding it brings peace. It brings peace. And so, Paul wants to make certain then that as a redeemed of God, that one of the things that you're doing is letting or, or engaging in this habitual pattern of life of the peace of Christ ruling and reigning in your life. That's how you should be known. That's how we should all be known. This is not easy because our inclination is not to do that. Shoot first, ask questions later, do it that way. Get upset, blow up, whatever. That's how we react. That's typically what we want to do. That is our natural inclination. Paul here says is saying to us there's something different. And so what we're engaged in is a process whereby we're attentive to this issue. This dovetails nicely into the idea of the virtues. Those virtues in verse 12 help us do this, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are the things that flow out of the peace of Christ ruling. Now, this word rule is important. Um, it means to be a judge or, empire, or umpire. That's the sense in which it was used in the, in the original Greek of, of that day. This idea of ruling, an arbiter, if you will. It means to preside, to direct, to control. And so what he is saying is then allow peace to be the arbiter, the umpire, the controlling factor in your hearts. And so these words are important. So we start off with the word let. We understand that. You, let is to allow, to permit. And so what we're, Paul is saying, as you can do this now, right? Uh, as, as the redeemed of Christ, your first reaction is going to be to permit, to let the peace of Christ control your heart. That's what's going to happen. So that's what you do as, the, as a Christian. So what, what, what a church ought to be known for is not its hypocrisy and its infighting, but rather the fact that it's a people who are at peace with God and as a consequence are at peace with each other. Now again, I'm going to keep saying it because it's so important. This issue of peace is not one of compromise. It does not mean you cannot be a person of conviction it does not mean you cannot be passionate and persuasive. 
in the context of what we've talked about before, we talked about gentleness, and gentleness in the, in the original Greek had a picture associated with it of, 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 of training a young colt, a young horse, to be under control. The same idea is present here. That horse is still a horse and can still do all the things that a horse does, but under control. So too here with the idea of peace. The peace of Christ restrains us, it checks us, because the minute we begin to think about asserting our right, we ought to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 what did God do for me? Do I, do I really need to go down that road? Do I need to react this way? Do I need to become animated or upset or say something out of turn? No. Because in that instant, what you're supposed to be doing through the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, as we are indwelled by Him, and we don't want to quench the Spirit, we say to ourselves, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let peace be the judge, be the arbiter, be the controlling factor in how I react, in how I relate, in how I speak. Do you see this? This is very important. We'll even see this idea communicated in Paul's exhortations and teaching on the home. And so, Paul sets a very high standard for the, for the redeemed. Christ was the perfect embodiment of this peace. This is how He acted. We know that He was firm. We saw what He did in the temple with the people who were engaged in money lending and how He cleaned the temple out, yet He was still a person known to be of peace, certainly a man of conviction. And so, these, this, this ability is, is related to this peace which is prevalent within us because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. It is the peace which Christ gives us, the peace which comes from Christ. As I am in Christ, I revel in knowing what it is that He has done for me. I know that in Christ, all that was against me has been resolved. All that God had the right to do to me and with me has been resolved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That He bore all of my punishment, all of my pain. He bore all my stripes. He was wounded. He bore all of God's iniquity. And all of the peace that's attendant with that is given over to me through Jesus Christ. There is great comfort in this. It is a peace indeed that's brought by Christ. It's the peace that Christ both has and gives to us. And this peace, as we know, is first, it's redemptive and vertical. It establishes peace with God, as we know from what we've studied in Colossians already. Colossians 1.20, turn there with me to go back and be reminded of this. Paul just, again, building on the doctrine, building on these important issues, the doctrine of reconciliation. It is by and through the doctrine of reconciliation that there's peace made. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1, and through him, Jesus Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
And so Paul, building on the doctrine of reconciliation, which incorporates the issue of peace, of course, because to be reconciled is to be at peace, right? Paul here emphasizing this important point. It's, it's the idea of peace is redemptive and vertical. It's, it's about God and man, and it's a, it's a, it's a resolution of that tension and that judgment that exists in the context of man in his natural state. Because of Christ, there is now peace with God. And because there's peace with God, I can then be at peace with others as I reflect upon the reality of the peace that I have with God through Jesus Christ. And so from that restored relationship between God and man, Christ then brings to each of us peace within our hearts and peace within our circle of relationships. And so we have a command, we have an imperative, we have an exhortation to permit peace, to reign, rule, umpire, judge. And where does this all take place? What's the arena of this activity? Well, as we look at chapter 3, verse 15, we'll see that this occurs where? In your hearts. Now, that's important. That's very important. The reason that is important is because the heart is the core of our being, the place from which intellect, volition, and emotion arise. We've talked about this before. The Bible speaks to the issue of the heart repeatedly. Out of the heart comes all sorts of things. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? There's all sorts of issues with the heart. But a heart that's been transformed by Christ can now do something that it could not do before. It can control itself. It can engage in activities that are now pleasing to the Lord out of a delightful duty and heartfelt gratitude for what God has done for us. And so the arena of where this peace is reigning and ruling is in your hearts. So what does that mean? So that means as in your heart, you're beginning to react to something, that's the moment that the reigning and the ruling occur. It doesn't happen after. It shouldn't, at least. Now, you can apologize to people and ask for forgiveness. That's a good thing. But we shouldn't even have to get to the place where that's necessary, is what Paul is saying. As this peace is reigning and ruling within my heart, it's checking the very inclination that would give rise to the necessity for an apology or a correction. And so Paul says to us, listen, this is a heart issue. If you are truly one of God's and Christ is yours and you understand the peace of Christ, then you ought to be a person who is under self-control fruits of the Spirit, who is controlling their internal emotions and is checking that the instant it begins to rise up within the heart, before it even gets to the lips. James's exhortation is the same about the tongue. Controlling our tongues, the principle is the same. It's all driven by this peace. And it's all relational. 
It's interesting that in and from this location of the heart, peace is to be permitted complete sovereignty. Complete sovereignty. So, husbands and wives, this will play out as we get into that segment of Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 3. It's going to play out in the context of how you discipline your children, how you live in the home. These principles all apply. And so, this in, this word, when Paul says in, of course, we see that that gives us the indication of the location of where this peace controls. It's in our heart. And we need to be mindful of that. I think oftentimes we forget the fact that, that this, this issue of the heart is imperative as we, as we live out the reality of our faith. And frankly, the exhortation from Scripture is that we ought to be growing um, in maturity and the frequency of perhaps outbursts and things of that nature should become less as we mature in Christ. We certainly should be growing up and maturing in these truths and this understanding. So, this is very personal that relates then to a communal experience. So, as I'm controlling my inner heart, as I'm allowing and permitting and restricting my reactions based upon the peace of Christ, that plays out in a communal experience that keeps peace within the church. How badly the church needs this. How badly the church needs this. This is something that's often overlooked, neglected. This is an important practical instruction from Paul. It's certainly wise and something we should be attentive to. So, each individual believer is then responsible to make certain that Christ's peace reigns in their heart and from their heart in their relationships with others. Okay? So, let me say that again. Each of us, each individual believer, is responsible to make certain that Christ's peace reigns in our heart and from our heart, in it and from it. If it's in it, what comes out of it will be controlled by it. So, in our heart and from our heart, in our relationships with others. This peace of Christ is something that each believer has and each believer receives. It's something that each believer experiences and knows and can appropriate because God has so graciously given it to us. We cannot say, well, that believer has it, but that one doesn't. God didn't give him the peace of Christ, but he gave that one the peace of Christ. That doesn't work that way. Each of us, in God's perfect plan of salvation, have been given the peace of Christ, which then is to control and rule and reign within our hearts. As a consequence of that, we as the redeemed of Christ come together and we experience then the peace of Christ collectively. That's why the body of Christ is so important. This is why we ought to be together. This is why we are called to be together. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, the author of Hebrews would say. And so we come together. Why? 
in order to demonstrate the reality of the peace of Christ. We, 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 we are here in order for each one of us then to understand and to comprehend the magnitude and the wonder of this very peace of which Paul is speaking and that plays out in how we react to each other and how we relate to each other and what we do with each other. And this does not mean within the church that there cannot be difficult things that we have to deal with. We understand that sin comes into the church. We understand that there is a process for church discipline. We understand that there are times when we have to confront those who are in sin. Paul would even write in what he would refer to as large letters to the church in Corinth when he firmly rebuked them for their sin and open rebellion against God's Word. Those things are still part and parcel, but those things can still be done in a way that is reflective of the reality of being controlled by the peace of Christ, which is what we're called to. Now, it's interesting to this. This is not just Paul's words of wisdom for the weary. You know, this isn't Paul's daily bread for the Colossi church. Sorry. But rather, what he is saying is this. This is something that, that they're called to. You have been called into this peace. So this is simply not a, a wise idea being passed on by a good apostle. Rather, this is instruction This is that to which indeed you were called, he says. And indeed, the structure grammatically of this passage indicates that Paul is speaking spatially, meaning he he is saying that you were called into such peace. Isn't that amazing? That even in the context of the doctrine of election, that God in His perfect plan of salvation provides to you an environment in which you can exist in peace. This is why the church is a, is a, is a wonderful reprieve from the world. I don't understand why Christians don't want to come. They'd rather be in the world. I baffle about that. I wonder about that at times. But it is here in which God has called us to experience peace. It's spatial. It's here. All week long, we're in turmoil. Work is difficult. People are angry. Things are challenging. Yet it is here in the church where I spatially get to experience peace. True peace. Isn't that amazing? That's wonderful. This is what Paul is saying to us. And so Paul wants to make certain that the church reflects this, that the church is demonstrating this. Paul emphasizes that this peace is something to which we have been called. This harkens back to verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, Paul is still standing on the doctrine of election. And he even uses the aorist tense to look upon the event of God's call extended to each believer, that kind of big global picture of this continuing reality of truth. 
It's interesting, too, that Paul uses the passive voice when he uses the word called here to remind us that the placement of us in the context of this piece was an act taken by God, not ourselves. This picture is God's initiative in calling each believer. So God calls to himself through Christ is a call to be at peace with him and to live at peace with others. This is what he says, in one body. So we understand then that this calling, this placement, is even within the context of the church. The reality of this, again, spatially occurs here with us, the redeemed of Christ. The oneness of the body is the sphere and element in which the peace of Christ is to be carried on and realized. Each one of us is called individually, but God is calling more than one, of course. He's called many people to himself. And all of them together discover they have been called into one unified body, the church. And so Paul now adds a final imperative at the end of verse 15. And be thankful. What? Pastor, you mean to tell me i got to be at peace with people and i got to be happy and thankful about it too? Can't we just deal with peace today? Let's save thankfulness for later because I don't feel like being very thankful today. Well, no, we're to be thankful. This is the second imperative of verse 15. He says, be thankful and be thankful. Or become thankful is kind of more of a literal translation. But what he is saying to us is that this is, again, a repeated habitual action, an attitude of gratitude. Gratitude, thankfulness, is to become the default setting of our hearts and minds. That's what Paul is saying. Let the peace of Christ reign, rule, in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, semicolon, and be thankful. That's not easy to do. I don't always want to be thankful. I'd like to be unthankful sometimes. I mean, I want to grumble about things. I want to express myself in a certain unthankful way. It feels good sometimes to get it off my chest. But he's saying to us to be thankful. To be thankful in the face of a lot of difficulties. Think about life for the Colossi Church. We've talked about this before. Just everyday life was insanely difficult. You couldn't make it a week if you were there. You'd die just from drinking the water. Most of you wouldn't be alive at the age that we are. And those of you who are younger most likely wouldn't have very good teeth, probably missing a limb, some disfigurement from a work injury, maybe having been bitten by something poisonous because that happened a lot, half of your siblings dead, be thankful. Well, wait a minute, Paul, shouldn't he be talking about those things? I mean, where, 
shouldn't there be a big list in here of all the things that they're going through and all the struggles and how he feels bad for them? At the beginning of the chapter, shouldn't he have been praying for those things rather than increasing the knowledge and wisdom in the things of Christ? Makes you, makes you want to reprioritize how you pray, doesn't it? And be thankful. For what? For your salvation. For each other. The others whom God has saved. You walk into a church, you're looking at a room full of people who are despicable, despised sinners, saved by God's grace. Be thankful. You walk into a church and you hear the preaching of the Word. Be thankful. You get in your car on Sunday morning to go to church to listen to the preaching of the Word. Be thankful. Teach your children to be thankful for that. You get to go to church today. Little kids, be thankful. You're going to hear a Sunday school teacher teach you about Christ. Be thankful. Are you thankful for that? When you pray with your kids at night, do you teach them to pray and to be thankful for their church, for their Sunday school teacher, for their pastor, for the people who care for their souls? Be thankful. We ought to. The word here used by Paul, this idea of thankfulness, designates the compulsion of one who is grateful to another for a favor bestowed. It's overwhelming. You can't, but the thing is this, this is the problem in churches today. You, people aren't being told how desperately they need salvation. They're being told how good they are. They're being told to embrace their aggressions, their microaggressions, their social status, their race, whatever it is. They're being robbed of true peace and true joy. This is, a per, this is, is so important for us today. It, it designates the compulsion of one who is grateful to another for a favor bestowed. God didn't have to save you, but He did. That's a favor bestowed. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful for that? Paul has in view the believer's gratitude in response to God's grace extended into his life. The emphasis is not simply upon an internal attitude of thankfulness, but upon the actual expression of the thankfulness. When was the last time you told somebody that you're thankful that God saved you? To actually express it and to say it. God saved me. I can't comprehend it. I don't understand it. As I get older, he continues to peel back the layers of my heart like an onion showing me just how bad things were and are. Yet he saved me. And in Christ, he has secured me forever and forever. Every sin that I have committed and will commit covered by the blood of Christ, ordained before the foundation of the world predicated upon his sovereign love for me alone and nothing else. Be thankful. Be thankful. So, 
a little verse like this contains a powerful punch, one that brings us to our knees in adoration and praise, an expression of wonderful worship. And this gratitude toward God makes peace toward others then possible. How could I not be at peace because I am at peace with God? The well of God's unceasing grace must constantly be bubbling up within us, manifesting itself vertically in gratitude to God. And apart from this ever-present, always-flowing supply of God's grace and our resultant gratitude, we will soon run dry of grace to extend to the next person, and our relationships will no longer be marked by the touch of God. Are your relationships touched? and marked by the touch of God? It's a question you have to ask yourself. How do people know you? What are you known to be? Within the church, we need to be thankful, and we need to check ourselves, and we need to let the, the peace of Christ rule and reign within our hearts. Now, the question is, do you know Him? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you somehow figured out that you have a scheme or a plan or a play that negates the necessity of this reality? Well, you may have some false sense of peace right now, but you don't have permanent peace. Outside of Christ, you are separated from God and you're under His judgment. And you will give an account and you will be justly condemned. You will spend all of eternity living within the full-orbed presence of God's wrath and justice. Or, it's quite simple, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and the peace of Christ will be yours. Turn and look to Christ. In faith, call upon Him and nothing more, and you shall be saved. And you'll know the peace that everyone wants. It's quite simple, isn't it? It's a very direct message. Call upon Christ, and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the peace that you've given to us. Forgive us for not living out the reality of it in our day in and day out lives. Forgive us for not being thankful as we ought to be, thankful for all that you've done for us, thankful for our salvation, thankful that you've placed us with other believers who have been equally spared just judgment, who've been extended the favor, your favor, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for our sin. Forgive us for not loving you as we ought. Help us to do better in these areas. Help us to look to Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to be reminded of the fact that Christ was always at peace. He was always thankful, and we're grateful for that. And may the reality and the joy that that brings to us cause those things to flow out of our hearts towards others as well. Thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for loving us first. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.